Hi, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Why, a new podcast showcasing the greatness of people through their life stories. Each episode will capture insight into the lives of people just like you and I, with the intention to connect, align, and create inspiration for and with our listeners. Stay with us through our What's and Why segment, where we dive into our guest perspective with some thought-provoking questions that just might be right up your alley. I'm your host, Helen Dillon, and thanks for joining us. Now let's get into it. What do you want the story to look like when you're old enough to be able to look back? And how do I make the story part? Hi again. Thanks for joining me and welcome to episode eight. I recently invited Abby Newell, founder and CEO of Piaf, to sit down with me for a virtual chat. Piaf is a leading talent management and marketing agency that creates opportunities for athletes, influencers, brands, and enterprise across equestrian sport. I was thrilled that she accepted and said yes, making herself very available to connect with me. What I thought would be a quick visit ended up being a wonderful three-hour call full of life stories, adventures, and insights. In 2016, I had the pleasure of meeting Abby in person while working my full-time gig at EMG. I was assisting to organize a dressage masterclass with none other than Carl Hester, MBE, UK Olympian and dressage athlete extraordinaire. Some would be bold enough to say he's the king of dressage, and I can't disagree. EMG went on to host Charlotte Desjardins' CBE, who in her own right is the queen of dressage and rock star of the sport. She's a household name within the dressage community globally and is represented by none other than Abby Newell. Abby is a powerhouse, educated at the University of Manchester, and completed an internship in New York, New York, before settling down in London, England to strike up an astounding career in the film and music industry. While going through the motions of doing what young people do and creating her amazing path in life, an aha moment hits, and Piaf is born. Join me as Abby walks us through her stories, insights, goals, and ambitions of her past, present, and future. Listen on and please enjoy meeting Abby Newell, a powerhouse of passion with unlimited charm and grace. No one in life is bigger than anyone. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again today. Welcome to What's Your Why? And we are here with Abby Newell of Piaf from Across the Pond. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Abby. And we're going to pick apart her life a little bit and what her position is with her business, how she got there, and how she was innovative and in her vision and her ambition in the whole process. I'm interested to know what your life looked like prior to 2012 and the birth. Was it 2012 that you sort of started Piaf? It was towards the end. Obviously, we had the Olympics then. The British team in the sport of dressage were quite strong at the time for the gold medal. And I had horses, but I was living in London, still doing this music film career that came before all this. So it was always something that, you know, my family, my father's quite self-made and probably my biggest inspiration is very, the world owes you nothing type. And it was very much drilled into us when we were young. So, you know, starting your own business is, is something that was always a, a, an ambition, but it was kind of what would that look like prior to 2012. It's quite a big story. Do you want me to go back and just... Yeah, maybe university. You went to university in Manchester? Yeah, so I went to university after I finished high school. And 
it's funny because now I'm 38, I have a lot of books, you know, with all the experience over the years, you kind of think, right, if I did my studies again, I mean, I did fairly well at university. It's not to say I didn't, but I think I'm more academic over the years rather than the time I was supposed to be academic. But isn't that university? I mean, in England, the social scene is quite big. Mm -hmm. Parties are very normal when you're at that age. So that was probably more the focus at the time. But there you go. Typical 20, early 20 year old. But yeah, I was at university and then I always had ambitions to move to London. I was a bit of a dreamer as a kid. You know, I kind of saw the big cities as just places of opportunity. My parents used to go to London occasionally for whatever reason and uh, I was always quite inspired by it so but just before I did that I went to university in Spain as part of the program that I was doing at um, Manchester University and I think it's quite bold to send students there because even though I'm quite confident and I have good family good support and so on you know to go to another country and study was quite a big thing at say whatever it was 20 21 years old but you know it, these things are always grounding you know it is like and without throwing in a load of cliches and quotes it is that the more you challenge yourself the more you grow from it mm-hmm. and it was good to be amongst you know in another country another culture I actually went to university in Santiago de Compostela and anybody that knows Spain knows that that's quite the rainy part of Spain. And as shallow as you are back then, uh, the days before hair straighteners and just general mass amounts of rain for days on end, it wasn't the best environment to kind of get out and explore the country and So I actually transferred to Madrid and there was a real energy in Madrid, you know, as there still is actually. And uh, we had no television for the whole time. I actually asked uh, the people that arranged the program if I could live with four girls because it was an apartment of five. And I showed up in Madrid and there was four guys. (laughs) And uh, I was a bit like, hey, what's this about? But, you know, it was a little bit of the friends situation. We had the girls across the hallway and we went to university, Complutense. And it was, you know, I'd say that was an amazing year. It was the 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 thing in Spain like just this matcha this energy and uh, very much consumed it and then yeah then I came back and finished studies and then I actually went to New York to begin with I think it was the time of sex in the city where we all thought we were them Mm-hmm. I've already been there a couple of times on trips with a couple of girlfriends and you think you're living that life But I think on a serious note, when I came back before I made the decision to go there, you know, I was a graduate in a sea of graduates. And ever since I was young, I always used to write to Disney when I was like 16 years old. You know, my parents still have a file of all the letters we sent and all the replies we got. I mean, it makes you cringe now. But also, I think looking at my younger self, it's quite endearing that I used to write to them about hoping to work with them one day. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, my dad says, even when I was young, I always was interested in who's who. You know, of course, I was immersed in popular culture. Of course, I used to think I was Britney Spears when I was young. <laughs> but at the same point, he, he always said it was fascinating how I would want to know who, say, the vice president of Disney was, which Almost to listeners, it seemed laughable when you're, say, 16, 17, 18, but it's just who I was. And there was actually, 
if I get the name right, there was a directory called Peterson's. I don't even know if it still exists. And I used to get it every year, and it was very, very thick directory. But it always had which businesses offered internships in America, whether it's paid or whether you have to be in a college program in the U.S. And I always was interested in entertainment. But again, not so much for just because of hanging out with recording artists and things. I was always interested in the business of it. And I wrote to everyone. I wrote to MTV, which obviously at that time was huge. I wrote Sony Pictures, Sony Movies, all for these internships, never got them. And there was actually a lady called Sally Fisher. I mean, Sally still has her company in New York. She's a prominent PR specialist. She's been in the business for a long time. And I wrote to her and she wrote back. So I responded. I actually live in a a place in the north of England. Now, anyone that knows England knows it's not so much as a north-south divide and the southerners are very friendly but the northerners are known to be quite friendly quite everything's easy and chilled the banter's high and just to give you a scenario I just kind of said to my dad I think I'm going to move to New York and do an internship and he's like what (laughs) what do you mean you can't do that Not so much I can't, but just the kind of sheer surprise. And I said, look, so I used the last portion of my student loan and I kind of researched where I could live. And I think it was a place, West 95th and Riverside Drive. Now, again, not to disrespect anyone who may listen and be over that side of New York City, but for me, it's say, God, I can't remember. I think I was 21, maybe. I kind of stayed in this hotel, which was part welfare, part hotel, and it was intense. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, it was something about the fear of it all. A psychologist can probably dissect this in an amazing way. I think I was addicted to the fear of things. Push yourself so hard, because I always said to myself, what is the story, if you're ever a grandma, that you want to tell your kids? What's the story? What do you want the story to look like? when you're old enough to be able to look back and how do I make the story parts? Even at 21, you were asking yourself that question, living your life that way. Yeah, the thing was, I was quite close to my nan, my father's side, um, and my mother's side, but my father's mother, my nan, uh, obviously, she she's quite academic and she's very straight talking. She used to be a maths teacher, but very nice as well. And she's even now she's 93 and she's very, very with it. You could talk to her for five hours and you'd never get bored. And you can see where it's channeled down to my father. And then I think hopefully to me. So I used to think about my nan and think when I'm of that age, What do I want the story to look like? And, you know, yes, we are enamored by the glamour of the sex in the cities. Yes, I wanted a point of difference when I finally decided to move to London and start getting jobs. But it was also just the big city and just the amount of opportunity it could bring. And I thought I wanted a career in PR. I was a little bit trying to decide between law because the majority of my dad's side of the family are lawyers, barristers, solicitors. And so, yeah, I moved to New York. And it's funny because I showed up out of a yellow cab from JFK and I walked into this grim hotel, (laughs) if you can even call it that. 
And this Irish girl, God, I, I, here I am on a podcast talking about my life, but I forget so many things. Can't remember. I think she was called April. And she was in the lobby of the hotel and she was upset because she lost a bag or something. And I just heard this Irish accent with this red flamed haired girl stood there. And I just literally latched onto her because I was nervous. Uh-huh. I was like, what have you done? Do you know, she was there with a, a few of her girlfriends. They'd all come to the city to kind of work over the summer. And I have to say, had I not met those girls who, who were also staying there, probably wouldn't have coped. Really? Even though I was strong. Because it doesn't matter how confident you are, especially when you're young. You move to a city like New York and you just go on this big women ambition. It can, it can be lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not saying that people don't care, but when, you know, Sally Fisher was amazing. She had quite a small office just off Columbus Circle. And there was a few things that started to happen when I started there. She never treated me like an intern, Mm -hmm. which I really respected. I think there's a whole thing about the English accent in the US. So actually, she sat me near her office. And she was arranging various things like a fashion thing at the Guggenheim and I'm trying to think of which way round it was. I think it was a restaurant called the Fiamma Osteria either in New York was opening in Vegas or the other way round. But she actually had me call some fairly important people and put me in taxis to go get things. But at the end of the day, you know, the English work very hard, but we are a culture of banter. You know, we are... <laughs> crucifying each other all the time and often when we care about each other more it's just constant and it's a huge difference but there you are there to do a job in New York but it was very corporate and when five o'clock came I knew where I was going back to and those women are going home they're going probably going back to families and I think it was kind of those moments of leaving the office and esteemed business it, they're the lonely parts. Yeah. The girls and I, you know, really supported each other. I think one worked in a restaurant and one was doing another internship. We bought some furniture. I don't even know how this happened. And you know the kind of stairs that go up the side of these huge buildings in the US? Like fire escapes. We dragged up this plastic furniture onto the roof of the building because it overlooked to the Hudson River Surprised we didn't kill ourselves, to be honest. And every night we sat up there and just ate food from the deli and just looked at the Hudson River and talked about our days. That sounds nice. I think it's those innocent things. The fearful part of it always pushes you. And I think it's only as you get older you really relish these experiences. I mean, I was so out of my depth and on such a limited budget. It was a tiny room. It feels like five lives ago. That's why my memory's so sketchy of it. But I'd bought these oversized pyjamas and they had Santa Clauses on them, but it was the middle of summer and I didn't mind. And I remember being in my room one night and this lady next door was playing a music really loud. And I remember just going out in my pyjamas and asking her politely if she would turn the music down because we had quite a busy day. And I think, bless her in many ways, because mental health is obviously high on the global agenda. She didn't appreciate that and uh, she turned it up even more but then it resulted in her smashing her own room up and then she came to start smashing my door in 
shouting that kind of it was the prime minister in the UK and whoever runs China, I'm quite embarrassed, I don't know, fault that the world is ruined. And at that point, I ran onto the roof. And, you know, I only mentioned that because the next day, crazily, I was coming back from uh, where I was working and I saw she was being taken off somewhere. Wow. Of course, it's heartbreaking. I mean, it was very scary at the time. But, you know, I went back into the office the next day, didn't tell these women anything. I just carried on. And then, you know, the internship, Sally Fisher, who still drops me a note maybe twice a year. I actually met her in New York maybe five years ago. So much has changed in and around the Columbus Circle area and the infrastructure of the city. But she always said, you know, I'm so proud of you. And really, you know, these places have such a turnover of interns. For her to take that time, and I genuinely mean this, I mean, I don't work with Sally now, I don't need to say this, but she's checked in with me over the years and watched me on social media and always said I'm really proud, which has always been nice. But I think the crazy thing, just to finish off on the New York chapter, is whenever an intern was leaving, Sally always got catering in. You know, she always wanted to say thank you for your three months, six months a year. And on my final day, I knew what was going on, obviously, because I was always helping to arrange it for other people. Mm -hmm. And literally, as I knew my catering was coming up the lift, the building lights went down. (laughs) And the electricity went off. And what proceeded after that was the famous New York blackout. Wow. And it's so funny because I think, you know, in light of 9-11, the city and the concerns were always heightened. I mean, I actually went to New York not long after what happened at 9-11 and saw the rubble Mm -hmm. to see the change in behavior with all the women that worked there and Sally and everybody be alive in the moment. And then some of the girls were... um, pouring onto the streets and the slight change in the the women's behavior was again another kind of lesson in the culture there and what they've had to deal with Mm -hmm. something that we all watched on the screens at home and I was actually with my dad when I saw that on television but anyway I think the tensions were heightened and then as, as nightfall came in you know, I always say to people that weren't there, imagine a city in complete darkness. I think it was the police that were kind of highlighting the street with their headlights on and um, people were stuck on the subway and they were coming off and we mm-hmm. all walked home. It's an amazing thing, New York, because you can obviously walk so far in the grid light structure slightly that it is. And the camaraderie on the streets of everyone kind of going north was amazing. You know, dogs were out. Uh, people were sat outside shops but it's something that to me feels a million years ago almost like that wasn't part of the fabric of my life but it was just such a big thing and you know going back to the neighborhood I lived in was a little bit hairy again the camaraderie amongst everyone was great but interestingly then when I went to JFK to come home you know the airport was absolutely full of tons of people uh, the conveyor belts aren't working. That was great if your luggage was slightly heavy and you were going to get charged. But again, everything, there was no air con. Uh, there was nothing on the plane. And when I arrived back at my parents' house, it's always a fun little memory I have. You know, I walk in from the blackout of three, four days. Uh, you know, we tried to eat in the delis because we never had food in this hovel that we were staying in. 
we just ate food out every night. And we went in the delis during the blackout and they said that they were cooking and we'd have torches on the burgers and we were like, this isn't cooked. <laughs> So I walked in my house and my dad, my brother and my father were talking and I, you know, you're lucky and you just want pure attention. And my dad had decided to start recycling. And the first thing he said to me is not that bin. And I was just like, is this a big thing? I've just got back from this monstrous thing going on. But it's almost like the lovely thing about going home to family. It's always warm and welcoming. Yeah, so that was kind of the New York experience. And then I went straight to London um, with an American friend of mine. I mean, we we knew of the city, but we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know the expensive neighborhoods, the cheaper neighborhoods. And we ended up renting an apartment that we loved in what turned out to be an expensive area. And I just applied for jobs and I, I picked up some good techniques that you know, over the years, I mean, a lot of these businesses now, they filter a lot of speculative emails and applications. And I always put for the attention of in the subject bar and then the individual. I never, I mean, I did apply for jobs from ads, but I always um, wrote to managers, MDs, vice presidents, direct, because if you think you get, and mind you, if, if this starts happening, <laughs> VPs will hate me. But if you see an email for the attention of Abby Newell, you don't know what it is unless you recognize the sender. So most of the time, I always got a response. And interestingly, over the years, I always found those at the higher levels of business took the time to reply rather than the mid-level executives or individuals that are just either working too hard or just can't be bothered right and I just started to apply to the record labels you know Sony Music, Warner Music, uh, EMI I always wanted to be in the business of music 100% and I had interviews for places didn't get them but it's funny because I was so obsessed with if I got a response off a VP that said there's no job but keeping I'd make a note of everything on a spreadsheet. I'd almost set alarms to touch base with him. Although it's a very general response, you know, please keep in touch for the future. I'd literally make a point of doing it. And, uh, you know, the LinkedIn's emerged. You know, sometimes I'd suggest a coffee with some of these people and go for coffee and spend half a day doing that with travel, still not get a job, but know that seeing someone face to face and it's amazing throughout my life who some of those coffee people I've either worked with further down the line or they stay in touch or businesses collide or whatever. It always amazes me that such a little gesture, taking the time to do that and have a face-to-face can increase your network tenfold. It is. And, you know, I think for recruiters nowadays and businesses nowadays, the one size fits all, even in that exact job role doesn't exist you know marketing departments are almost slightly sales departments now you know hr teams aren't just hr anymore they are they're cultural creators you know they've got to oversee so much and so much crosses over so you know that process of sitting in front of someone a bit like dating Mm -hmm. it's a real risk and you, you know taking that time and some like I say some senior level personnel individuals would sit and have a coffee with a 23 or whatever I was at the time you know that really meant a lot to me yeah 
and I nurtured those relationships over time and with Sony Music. So I think my first, I keep saying I think, my, I do know these things. <laughs> you know, if, if I say one thing I'm ever proud of, I feel like I've stacked it in for 38 years old, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I my first job was at Virgin Records. It was £14,000 a year. I was kind of an assistant and I was living in an apartment in a place called Fulham in London, which is quite nice near Chelsea. And ironically, I I look back, I think I was richer then than I am now (laughs) because all we did was go out every night. I think we took every free invitation going. I remember being at a De Beers diamond party and all these people being so well dressed and we just looked like tramps. But we just thought being there and saying we were there, we just, I mean, you know, it's like with social media media and the emergence of it over the years, it's kind of a, you create an illusion which opens more doors. Mm-hmm. We were just in the 20s, just before, you know, MySpace was obviously there, but the real emergence of social media, our version of that was just telling everyone we were at a De Beers Diamond Party, anyone that had listened. Right. And obviously, you know, being in music, going to a lot of gigs, I actually, so I took a job at Virgin Records, which was hugely valuable to me because a lot of the time I spent cataloging things. So, you know, I was physically holding CDs and vinyl and taking, getting a lot of free stuff of genres I'd never listened to. How did you make that switch? Did you decide you didn't really want to do PR because you played a different role with Sally in New York and then you made a switch to, was it just because it was the job that was offered or was that something that you had an intention of trying to achieve? I think the misconception with the system as such is that when people go to university or college in the US, that we're going to know what we want to do. I think if it's medicinal or it's um, obviously medicine or it's to be a lawyer, you do have to go down the traditional route. But I think at 18 years old, when you go to college, you don't even know who you are yet. You know, you don't have life experience. And I'm not saying the university shouldn't exist because there's so many things I value about going you know, the camaraderie, integrating with different cultures and learning about different cultures, meeting people from places in life you never would have in your hometown, researching deadlines, organizing your time, these all play well further down the line. Mm -hmm. Um, But to kind of know what you want to do, I mean, I think you've got to take the positive out of every situation, but don't assume that every decision then hits a door. It doesn't. And Sally, I enjoyed a lot, but I I didn't know what I was doing. Every single day I was winging it. I'll never forget, um, she asked me to ring. There was a guest list for one of the Guggenheim fashion shows she was doing. And uh, if my memory serves me, Roberta Myers was the editor at large of Elle America at the time. And I think I called the Elle office and check to see if she'd receive the invite, which obviously is not going to come from an intern. And I was filling in a spreadsheet and I asked what a job was. And I don't think Sally's got up as fast in her life and slammed the phone down and she murdered me in the most professional way. And it's kind of things like that where you just, everybody has a tapestry of things that help them develop. 
Mm-hmm. But I did find straight PR. I mean, PR as a discipline has evolved hugely over the years anyway. But at the time, the press releases, the guest list, the I kind of wanted more. I wanted more feeling. And, you know, creative people are my tribe, you know, and being in the music business, one, I first and foremost love music, obviously essential. Although I didn't know the business of music, what a record label or a publisher or touring involves, I wanted to know. I wanted to know how the icons of my day, the NSYNC, the the Britney Spears, the Whitney Houstons, how are they on stage? What is their revenue streams? Who records the music? What's it like in a recording studio? But now I know the industry, all these different things I was fascinated about, a whole department, some are not even in the same building. Mm -hmm. So for me to go to Virgin Records was just to get in the door. You know, the famous mailroom thing when you talk about agents like C- agencies like CAA for actors and things like this. I just wanted to be in the door. Um, so categorizing music, being a kind of assistant that just does a bit of everything, it didn't matter. But obviously, living in that area in London when we clearly didn't know what we were doing, I took a job at a venue in London called the Hammersmith Apollo. And my job was to seat people, but then you would stand at the back like security, you know, 22-year-old blonde-haired northerner, hardly scary, but you stand there in the uniform and um, we got to watch the gig. That's the only reason I did it, for free, because you're in there. I had Virgin Records, I had Hammersmith Apollo five nights a week maybe. I know I had a third job, I just can't remember for the life of me what it was. And always in the back of your mind, were you thinking, I wanted to branch away from that and start my own gig one day? No. Okay. Not at that point. I mean, I've always been, my dad actually owns property, he rents it out, and he's he's very kind of savvy like that. But my dad is intelligent, but he's very, my world was always confusing. He's kind of, I own that, I sell it to you for that. This is a this is a simple process type thing. Um, very tradesman-like, whereas this world that I was in was very different to him, which is fair. Um, but I wasn't motivated by money. I mean, money money is a wonderful thing and it buys your choices, but you cannot, you can buy life experiences with money. Well, you certainly can't buy happiness, that's for sure, whatever anyone says. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was all about the experiences. Of course, I didn't want to have a not a lot of money in my account, but it's the nature of the beast when you're young that you've got to earn your way through. And, you know, I was supported when I was at home. I, I'm not going to lie that, you know, I had a nice childhood. There was fairly no drama. When my parents divorced, they were great friends, and that was a huge privileged position to be in as children. I think I was 11 uh you know they even went house shopping together and my dad's telling her this cottage is nicer than than this so it's a these kind of lessons and and you know I say to people you can be as motivated as you like but when people inherently judge someone which is not always fair know their story mm-hmm. you know if you're in a, if you're growing up in a household where you're being told you can't achieve you can't move to New York to do an internship. When you're young, you're not going to go then. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I was lucky that my my dad was like, the world owes you nothing, but it's there for the taking. You know, yes, I had private education. In England, that's paid for. Mm-hmm. And my dad got me a horse when I was 10 years old with the pure motivation. I wouldn't know what boys were then until I was 17 because <laughs> he'd drive to the stables every night and he'd pick me up and I'd be in for dinner and you won't be out in parks and trying to talk to boys. My dad did the exact same thing. (laughs) But then you could have a horse for £400 a month back then. So it's not not like now. London called and I did that for a while. And then, you know, the first kind of big break I had was uh, thanks to an amazing woman in HR that gave me a chance, was at BMG Music Publishing. And it was... I think a great foundation, what I no disrespect to Virgin Records at the time, but I I saw as my first proper job. You know, I think it was 22, no, maybe 18,000 a year. It was five days a week. And I mean, again, there could be a lot of music people I'm still in touch with if I end up putting this on my uh, social media. So no disrespect to any of these people. But I think publish the easiest way to describe it, you know, somebody writes a song, and uh, if Heather, your wonderful producer, writes the track and you record it, she's almost, in many ways, the most powerful person in the pair because it's her copyright. So I think for me to sit in publishing for four years, it was good to see that kind of side of it. But I always wanted eventually to be in the record company because I wanted part of the action. Mm-hmm. You know, the publishers are very much part of the action and they're crucial. You know, they own the catalogs and a million other things, but I wanted to be sat in a planning meeting with the A&R teams, the marketing managers, the radio side and and everything and just see. And one of the things I always loved at the time was film. When I was at BMG and all the way through the music career, we were syncing music to pictures. So we were part of teams called Sync Teams. And I still profess even now everything took a different direction. It's one of the best jobs in the world. I went from BMG, Universal bought BMG Publishing, you know, and then I went to Sony Music and did the same job, but on the record side. But, you know, the job was a lot of sales. You're trying to um, hit targets of millions a year in a small team. You are listening to new music every day. But when you get an advert or you get a film with no sound and you're either briefed by now music supervisors or the ad agency or the TV channel and you sit there and you sync it to picture, to pitch it, and you believe it works and then, you know, you do the deals, you agree it with the artist, the publisher or whatever, and then you see it on air, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. And, you know, I love that job. And I applied to Sony Music a few times and I never got the job. And then I think my first job was Sync Assistant. And uh, I stayed at Sony for four years. I'm still very much in touch with people there. Uh, Psycho was in the building, Simon Cowell's team. Uh, RCA was in the building. Epic was in the building and obviously Columbia Records. Mm Mm-hmm. And sync people, again, I say this with humility, not any, we're not rock stars, but we were treated a bit like that because no one could quite understand why an artist track got in a, a John Lewis advert and there's 30,000 coming in for it. 
they just because they we were going in ad agencies day to day. We were going in uh, Lionsgate and Fox Film and things, just keeping up appearances, checking in with the clients. But we worked across all the labels. Mm-hmm. So you know, RCA had a very different feel to Columbia Records. Simon evolved X Factor, and it was nice to see that emerge and obviously what that became. But it was an amazing time. It really was. We used to go out five nights a week. We used to follow the A&Rs round. This is when you're a bit younger on the lower salaries, when you actually got serious work to do. It wasn't always possible. And, you know, we were drunk a lot of the time. We had hangovers every day. Some days we just wanted to die. We felt so bad. And other days it was just we were on top of the world. But the thriller chasing the deal or the, we we had an artist in the UK, he's, he's still doing well, and I think he has a presence in the US, called Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And when Labyrinth was signed and he came in with his manager, I mean, one thing I was never... Now, we can't swear on this podcast. Oh, yeah, you can. I'll imply what it is. It's called a star effer. And it was kind of an internal nickname to people that were in the business for the wrong reason. I mean, it is a joy if product managers were working with recording artists, you know, the label had invested in an album, the teams behind the artist are putting hours to get them on radio stations, TV, concerts, so on. When the album went to number one, those people have earned their right. But if you're in the business just because you wanted to be around recording artists or you're not interested in the business of music and its challenges... We used to call them, they're just a star effer. And you know what's funny? I was never one of them. You know, obviously, like all of us, if someone of a Goliath public persona nature or amazing recording artist walks past you, you do, your heart skips a beat, especially if you like them. If you don't, you're not bothered. Sony had some titans, you know, and they still do. They had Beyonce came in once and... Her father did a playback session of the new album. And you do have those moments of great gratitude. But the prime driver for me is, you know, I was always fascinated the of things like the implications, implications of um, Spotify when it was evolving. How is the business going to evolve to this digital revenue stream and, and so on? But I think in the end, what made my transition out of the business, we had an amazing chairman at the time, Jed Doherty. I liked him very much. And I was always one in a sea of 500 people on an open plan floor. I wanted my chairman to know who I was. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be his best friend. I don't want special treatment. uh, But I just wanted him to know who I was. And I've always been a bit like that in anything I'm in. You know, I don't see it's not about stepping over people or not respecting the chain of command in a business, but I still want them to know who I am. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about the sync teams at Sony, there was only four of us. So, you know, when you've got a team making eight million a year and no one quite understands how all this is on television, your chairman did know who you were. But when he left and there was actually a tragic loss of uh, a young guy in Colombia, which cast a cloud over things, it was kind of a turning point for me because the music industry was becoming, not just in my time, I mean, you talk to somebody who lived in the business in the 60s at the height of rock and roll and prostitutes are coming in and they're all having a great time, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, they think my time was corporate. 
But over my period in the industry, in the 2000s, I even saw it evolve to become more corporate. And that's not to say it's a detriment to the business, but I think along with that and then the loss of that chap at the time, my chairman exiting the business when I thought it was great, I just felt there was a need for a change. So I went to Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. I was part of the sales team at Warner Brothers. And interestingly, it was at the height of Harry Potter. And I'll I'll tell you a funny story about that. If it's not going to happen to me in the middle of the street, a wizard, a wand, something popping out the floor, Star Wars, it's not for me. That's just how it is. I've never been into this sci-fi or fantasy or anything. The only thing I appreciated and got into and didn't let that stop me was Game of Thrones. Oh, that's a good one. Game of Thrones was as epic as everyone knows it was. The dragons were more than acceptable. But Harry Potter, the franchise, the development of it, Fantastic Beasts, J.K. Rowling, everything is just unbelievable and hugely commendable. But I watched Harry Potter personally for about 15 minutes. I was like, not for me. Great guy, amazing wizard, I'm sure, but not for me. But yeah, I sat at Warner Brothers and sold this and other titles into retailers or whatever we were doing, airlines, with the most passion you could ever imagine. (laughs) Harry Potter is the greatest thing to ever happen. But where this got strange is, of course, you know, that was just a a title of epic proportions. You don't get many Harry Potters, these big franchises and, and titles like this in the world that will last forever. And slightly fast forwarding, but just for this story, when, when you're in an organization, you know, yes, I met Simon Cowell a few times at Sony, but you're not going to be hanging out with chairmen's presidents this every day. It's just not how it is. And of course, you're never going to meet J.K. Rowling. Maybe people that work at Warner Brothers will tell me otherwise, but not on a normal basis. And then fast forward when I started with Charlotte, we got this email, I have to say, off a very Harry Potter type random email domain. She's certainly not at Hotmail or Gmail.com, I'll tell you that. J.K. Rowling was a huge fan of Charlotte's. This is Charlotte Desjardins, the dressage rider. And uh, she'd been watching her and admiring her for years. And then the year before Vallegro retired, I think, J.K. Rowling was my guest at Olympia Horse Show in London with her husband, Neil, and her children years later. Amazing. Amazing. She was very humble. She was very quiet. She was very down to earth. But I never told her I worked for Warner Brothers. And I never told her that Harry Potter wasn't for me. But it's just, it's crazy. And uh, Warner Brothers was, again, a good standing. I think the only thing, it's a little bit like music to film to Charlotte. I think with all these industries, I was worried that kind of being in the business would ruin my love affair with those products as such. And when I went to Warner Brothers, great company, not just saying that, you know, they fostered a nice culture We had good screenings. It was in central part of London. But for me in the role I was in at Warner Brothers, I just felt it wasn't – they were all passionate about film. It's not to say they weren't, but it was, again, corporate. 
and didn't feel like it actually had a lot of connection to the end product. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what fascinated me is all the creative processes. So I think I was actually only on contract a year and then I just left. I went to an agency then that marketed high entertainment IP. There was only 20 people there and they launched Downton Abbey and Obviously, Downton has lots of agencies. It's not just this one. This one very much dealt with the design and the outdoor advertising and so on. Um, but the creative director at the time, you know, he, he, one, he was an amazing guy. But I remember when he told me that he'd arranged that iconic photo shoot in front of Downton Abbey for all the publicity where they're in a triangle. And then every time someone died over the years or left, they had to reshoot the whole thing all the time. But the publicity team, Milk Publicity, sat in our office and there's a lady there, Victoria, she was very inspiring and took the time to speak to me. And, yeah, you know, they handled IP that's watched by millions on a creative level, just creative design more. So I did that for a couple of years, but then I got a horse and this is where we transitioned over. So I had horses when I was young for 15 years and – Having a horse in London, not possible. So it was just outside London. I was living in the west of London at the time and going out to the horse on the M25, which is a main motorway out of London every day, just the doorway to hell, to be honest. I was riding at eight, nine o'clock at night, no floodlights. But my partner at the time, you know, I started to get, there's a, there's a magazine in England, Horse and Hound, you know, it's been going over a hundred years. I started to get that, and I don't know what it was. I think there was a day where he just said, you know, you're interested in all this again. And it was it was kind of a tale of two halves. Half of me chased the the energy and the the whole entertainment side, and then part of me, after 10 years of living in London, yearned then for the more going back to the horsey country life. Right. So my horse was at a yard north of London. That yard had a retailer that worked with some of the prominent riders. Now, if we get on kind of the darker side of business, which we've all experienced, everybody has a different version of the story. My version is fact. I've been with Charlotte as her manager eight years now, so it's obviously held strong. Mm -hmm. But her mother, well, this is fact because this was public, but her mother... The lady that owned the retail store and the yard is a very nice lady, but she's a, she was a former trader turned retailer trying to help what was our gold medalist, Britain's first gold medalist in the sport, uh, manage the birth of that brand. Right. Now, it's not to criticize her because she she was only doing what is in her nature to help. But it was funny because I had my horse at this yard and I knew what was going on. And interestingly, as I've experienced over the years, and no doubt all of us have and all of us will, you know, if you're not threatened by things, you will you will give people the tools, the knowledge to fly for themselves. You either learn to be that person or you are that person or you're not. And I was surrounded by people that very much knew what I was capable of and was trying to keep me in a box. Charlotte and her mother, so just for the kind of listeners, Charlotte Desjardin was a former show rider. She turned to dressage and was based with Carl Hester, still is. 
who's been at five Olympic Games, so he's quite iconic in the sport. And, you know, she became, through his training and her unbelievable ambition, she got onto the British team for the London 2012 Olympics. But, you know, she, she was amazing. She got gold. She got team gold and individual gold. But as an individual, she was not prepared for the change in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, she's from very humble beginnings, you know, which is why the press has always loved her over the years, because she's not what people perceive the equestrian world to be as kind of a rich girl. She's an obsessive. And But she found that her confidence in that space was almost unusually low. I mean, for the best of us, if we all have to stand on a stage or speak, or most of us would find it tough if you're not used to it, but she really found it tough. By her own admission, she's not academic. If you talk to her about her horses, she'll talk all day long to any BBC or anything. But you start challenging in other spaces. If it's not a comfort zone, it's not that she won't have the knowledge, but in that moment, she can't formulate her thoughts in the right way. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how mother and I became connected. I think it was through Carl Hester and a few others. And I went to see her mum and dad. And uh, amazingly, you know, I've never met this family. I arrived on a Friday. By Friday night, we're all in our pajamas we're sat around talking about this massive thing that's happening and mother's cooking and so welcoming and Charlotte was at another championship at the time and by Sunday Charlotte dialed in and they're all on speakerphone the family and they said look we've got this girl here she's called Abby we think she can help you with some stuff and Charlotte I think had won another something or other and she was like okay yeah sounds good and glossed over it but yeah so I was still in London I knew this was on the periphery I also knew that I wanted to have my own business but didn't know quite what in and Charlotte and I had our first conversation it was very organic though you know even now we're dropped from other planets and when I say that, I don't mean one's better than the other because that's not how it is. We're just raised differently. We're educated differently. We have, in many ways, some different outlooks on life, but it's like yin and yang. It just fits. So I set up PF um, to manage her business affairs. This is 2012. 2012, but it was more social enterprise at that time. It was never a limited company. I was more just kind of a self-employed freelancer helping her out very organically. I think she had 3,000 followers at the time. When you watch a film go from, say, a studio probably in L.A. or wherever it's come out of, all the way around the world and how the different branches are tackling it for their markets, same with an artist is in a recording studio, it's mastered, it's finished, the deals are done, and then what is the process to the charts? How's the brand of that recording artist managed? I kind of thought I can wrap a framework around this girl and look after her. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I I remember saying to her, I don't even think she'll remember, but it sounds so arrogant and so cocky, but it wasn't meant like that. But I said to her, if you walk a mile in my world right now, In London, we were working on Hunger Games at the time. No one cares. And I think she was quite taken aback. But what I wanted her to understand is that no one in life is bigger than anyone. doesn't matter how much money you have. 
Now, people with a lot of money that don't share that sentiment or people that have worked hard in business might think it's condescending to them. It's not. It's more about how you want to be perceived in life and how you present yourself. And what I was trying to say to Charlotte is, you've achieved an amazing thing. You know, of course, you should be proud of yourself. But how we treat people and how you go forward doesn't change. And at the same point in London, you know, you can call it barometer of the UK, perhaps, is that no one knew who she was. Dressage equestrian is a niche sport still. Nobody cared. And I meant more from kind of a, from a commercial point of view as well. At the time, it was probably one in 20 people had ever heard of her. So, you know, she had to kind of come at this still with humility, although she was. It wasn't like I was saying it in response to what she was doing. Mm -hmm. But it was important that she knew that I wasn't a star effer. And I think my problem was, I think I was more internally challenged a little bit because I had her on a pedestal from a dressage perspective and my love affair with the sport and the horses. And I thought if I get to know her, it's a bit like never meet your heroes Mm -hmm. because they might just disappoint you in that moment. And I thought, is this just going to ruin everything for me, my little escapism? And in music, predominantly it didn't, but tiny bits of it did. I mean, there were some artists I did end up meeting. I was like, God, you really are vile. (laughs) You speak to people in such a bad way. So then I kind of set up this website and this social media look just so that she had someone to point media to. Mm -hmm. And then very early on, we had quite a lot of difficulties with people that didn't like that the Golden Goose had a suit of armor around her and they tried to cause a bit of trouble i think as well that i mean again this is a whole wide topic for another a day almost it was tricky in the early days although the whole how we are perceived is a whole other topic rightly or wrongly i think this 30 year old blonde haired northern girl saying no to certain things was just you know Agents, typically, a lot of them are male. Mm -hmm. I just didn't really fit the agency profile. I think from my background and the way I looked and probably the way I sounded, and I think uh, the federations and a few other top-level people just kind of wanted her to follow a certain route. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not to say that they didn't have her best interests at heart, but she was just drowning. Yeah, And I think we were similar age. We are similar age. I'd come from far bigger industries and thanks to her mum and dad, you know, they gave me that chance to just develop that very organically with her. But I was still working in London. I was still at the creative agency on a full-time job. So I think it allowed Charlotte and I to just, as I say, do it organically. And, you know, I didn't have a big ambition to be an agent. I'd seen how music managers are treated. I'm not saying they're not treated well, majority are, but just it's difficult you know you're dealing with humans you're dealing with their lives and not just their jobs it's an all all consuming uh role sometimes and so with charlotte it was kind of it was very organic and then she started to kind of say do you think you could help me with that do you think you could help me with that we had no contract i think we kind of grew it together a bit don't get me wrong she's got ian cast the best friend who's been completely there for since day one Uh, Carl Hester obviously taught her and he's been 
without him it wouldn't have happened so there's plenty of people that have been you know in her own autobiography a huge part of that but was equestrians having an agent at that time was that something that was popular so that's something you sort of honed in on and forged and created a whole new platform for people yeah there were some kind of pr ladies kind of doing this a little bit but you know i'll never forget being and i probably won't say who this is an awards ceremony in switzerland with the fbi and a certain person taking part in that ceremony said to Charlotte, you know, the princess, Princess Taya was present at this table at the time, said to Charlotte, you know, Abby, you're lovely, but Charlotte, have you not thought about a, quote, proper London agent? And we were all in ball gowns, you know, we're in the presence of royalty. And I just thought that was a low, of course, it's a low blow. But at the same point, how I handled that in that atmosphere was down to me. But where I'm not saying people always should have the benefit of the doubt. Interestingly, you know, I said to Charlotte, if you ever want to go to these agencies, we'll go. Right. We full well that most agencies won't touch equestrianism because it doesn't make enough money. You know, 10% of a soccer star's salary or an actor's is far cry away from the majority of riders that just get products. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget, I was fortunate. I decided to set up an agency where... We look after riders at the time. I had no forecast in, in my head to say it's going to be more than one rider. Mm-hmm. A little bit like if you walk in a room now and say, I'm going to look after most uh, F1 drivers, and they go, there, there, Helen, nice. We look forward to seeing how you get on. You go, let me present Lewis Hamilton. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere is going to be very different. So, you know, I know full well that when you have a rider that comes out of the Olympics like that with a gold medal uh, and decides to trust you, someone she barely knows, to just take on things a little bit at a time, it's a privilege. Mm -hmm. And it's a door opener and it's collateral. And we're very open with each other about that. You know, the riders that are now eight years on, and I've got a lot of them, I do do a job for them and I do, I think, do a good job for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also know that they are like my sponsored riders. They're like my ambassadors still for the business, particularly riders like Matt Harnicky, who I adore. The constant belief in you is it's a big thing when you stop and digest some of this and think these people are talking to you about their commercial partnerships, their social. Uh, You know, we have one rider that's... uh, encountered a tricky situation personally and you know it's kind of it's a privilege for me it's nice you guys were able to sort of ride the momentum wave together and grow together into something yeah and you know we were almost as you said earlier you know agents around the world in sport entertainment television they've got caa you've got img you've got these huge companies william morris that are well established um, but the equestrian world is, is one, it's, in my opinion, in many ways, not always, 20 years behind mainstream sports. Mm-hmm. We don't have tons of agents because there's, the perception is there's a lot of big commercial partnerships going on. There isn't. The flip side to this is there's so much potential. Mm-hmm. Because equestrian sport, when you look at its global participation, its global contribution to different economies, you can have a lot of people watch soccer, but you don't won't have that many participate in the way we have. Mm-hmm. And just what it contributes, you know, through events and shows. And I think if brands really dissected, and obviously there's a hell of a lot of brands involved with the sport, but more brands 
dissected the industries and the data that they could have that they don't have available to them there there would be a shift Mm -hmm. but for me at the time it was kind of I felt quite protective over her I'll say this without arrogance because I'm not I just felt I could do a good job for her Mm -hmm. I felt like I think the lawyer side of the family where we're taught to question everything where's the contract what do they look like it just kind of came into my head. I was like, I want to make sure she doesn't make any wrong decisions. Mm-hmm. And Charlotte's feisty. She's got opinions. She's got good banter. She's got a strong personality. But it was kind of like we evolved together. And then as she kept breaking world records and Vallegro just boomed over the years, it was just immense, really. And I still count those moments being a small part of the team in many ways as just a huge privilege. But as we kind of got more established and, you know, we hit a lot of brick walls in the industry, I was like, where's your contracts? And she's like, I don't have any. I was like, what do you mean you don't have any? I'd say to the brand, where's your contract? Oh, we get on really well with her. I was like, well, everyone gets on till they don't get on. Mm-hmm. As I say to the brands even now, it's not about just the rider. It's protecting yourself. Mm-hmm. Exchange here of an agreement. And all this friendly, friendly, which obviously is life. You can't change the human connection. But uh, I insisted on it. And it rubbed people up the wrong way. You know, I was aware that I was not popular in certain corners, however professional and genuine I was trying to be. There was people that didn't like it. And I dropped certain sponsors, which, you know, the people at the heads of those brands were quite influential in the sport. But... I said to Charlotte, you put a rod of steel down your back now because it sets your stall out for everything that's going to come. And then secretly we're on the phone going, Jesus Christ. (laughs) You know, it's just how it had to be. It was a bit like, why do you move to New York when you're in your early 20s? It was kind of something I knew you had to do. Doing it was a tricky thing, but all we were ever trying to do was do things right and be fair. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think because Charlotte is friendly and she's, um, you know, I'm only saying this because she writes about in her own book. She's not academic. She wants to do the right thing. But then she was hugely vulnerable. I think people not took advantage of that, but I think it was just kind of made what I wanted to do stronger I just wanted to watch her back really as a girl to a girl really Mm -hmm. even now I'd never say Charlotte and I are friends friends you know when like you use that phrase home home friends Mm -hmm. friends but we certainly have a I have a lot of respect for her I think now she has a lot she does have a lot of respect for what I do Um, and it works you know if she wants to talk about personal life I'm here if she wants to just run through the business update that's what we do in the roles that you, where you, I know you represent her as an entity, but in all of the tools that you use for her to gain traction and popularity and, you know, clinics and books and social media and events and all of those things that encompass what you do, what you and she do, is that sort of um, a system that you use with all of your riders or do they fit into different points? Like you're going to push this someone with the social media or this person's really good for events or this one's going to be a very good influence. How did you guys come up with that? How do you work with that on a regular basis? Did she just come to you one day and say, I want to do clinics, I want to do masterclass events, or I want to run a book? Or 
I think it's a bit of both. I think this is the difference between, say, launching a product, you know, whether it's an innovative thing for the iPhone or this, that, and the other. You're dealing with humans. So she she has her good days, her bad days. I'm the same. She has her own ideas. I have my ideas. In true honesty, I when I started PF and I was still in my London flat, I took any client I could get because I took – I told the CEO at the creative agency at the time that I was going to work with her because you don't just start doing something else without telling your boss, obviously. Mm. And a lovely guy, I have to say, but he was very much like, there, there, you horsey girls, go have a bit of fun. Next minute she's in the Sunday time, she's on the back of the tabloids, and he's like, she's quite all right, this girl, isn't she? She's doing all right. But I go down into Clerkenwell, into cafes at lunch and be doing calls Slightly off topic, I'm the tangent queen. But I think part of it was kind of winging it as we went. Mm-hmm. But knowing that, you know, the the kind of record labels and the things I'd experienced, even if we went into ad agencies like BBH, Grey London, uh, Sarchies, to pitch music, you would see how systematic these people were. You know, so in a record label, say Beyonce or Alicia Keys is launching a new album, that from the UK perspective, there'd be weekly reviews. The product manager, the uh, the A and R, would talk about the progress of the record. Uh, this lot would talk about their television and where if she's going to come over and so on. So, for me, again, does it start university where you start start to create this? How do you organise this in your head? Yes, I was doing that. I took a job with YouTube at the time as well as Charlotte, and I took a job with a small little design agency, and I was doing some work with MasterCard. So if I'm honest, I was all over the place. (laughs) But the excitement of London and the excitement of that thrill of the chase was what drove me. I mean, work for me has never been a chore. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not married. I would like to be one day, but I do know that I have put it first in everything. I've loved the thrill. I've loved the kind of the wanting to know my chairman, wanting to have the best riders. It's just how it is. But when I started, it was kind of a bit more reactive. I was dealing with things that were coming into Charlotte. And then as time evolved, it was kind of like, you have a story here. We can talk to some of the book publishers. And the publishers I knew from my music days. Mm-hmm. Or I just found them and approached them. But yeah, I mean, now I've learned a lot over the years. I mean, you know, you always sit there and someone could say, how can you evaluate talent? You know, you've never ridden to Grand Prix. And I'll say, well, yeah, but I'm not looking at that side of it. Of course it's important if they're going to be a dressage rider. But I'm not after the big names. I have to look at it as, as, first of all, are you a good ambassador for your sport? Are you a good ambassador for those that you need to pay it forward to, young people? Are you a good person? Mm-hmm. Um, but of course then I need to know their competitive ambitions so when I take on a new rider what I've tried to do over the years is really spend time with the brands mm-hmm. go to Spoga, the main event uh, in, in Cologne I've been going for six years twice a year but just like Sony I want to know the CEO of Kingsland I want to know Mr Shockamola I want to know Mr Rokel that owns the gloves I love the team at Rokal and all that I fully respect all their roles. They're good friends of mine, but I also want to know the top. 
And so alongside trying to build the business of riders, I've also been building the brand side. Mm -hmm. So when I take a rider now, I kind of say, first of all, what do they want to achieve? It's about them first. Have you got the horsepower? What is your full story? What's the makeup of your life? And do I think you're going to propel yourself well on social media? Do I then think that's going to attract the brands and which brands? So it's almost like your subconscious and your conscious do this evaluation as you go. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I just follow past precedents. But, you know, am I a traditional agent where I'm just in one box? No, I'm not. We hosted Isabel Worth last year. And I said to Isabel, we'll do this for your fee, but I want X amount of PF riders in it. Mm-hmm. It was fine with that. Again, I don't set out to the riders, you will one day ride for Carl Hester in Wellington or you'll be a guest on Isabel Worth's clinic. What I'm trying to always do as I go is where do you want to end up and what's the matrix of either marketing, proper marketing, the the building of a brand to get you there because you are a brand as well. Mm -hmm. Over the years, there's been occasions where riders that are prevalent now on teams that are nice people, but I just started with and didn't click with. Mm -hmm. Or I learned something about either their behavior or sometimes on a deeper level to do with the horses I don't agree with. And now I think PF's in a position where it really doesn't matter who you are. If you're not going to fit in with what I believe needs to be a good ambassador, or you're going to now represent Kingsland well enough in a way I know the company needs to be represented or whoever it is I don't want to work with you Mm -hmm. I think the other challenge is agents work on 10% of earnings again if you're a tennis player you're Djokovic or you're a footballer that's very attractive but a lot of my young riders aren't in a position to have financial deals yeah so over time I had to evolve well this is your passion you certainly don't do the agent of riders to pay all your bills i mean it certainly contributes but it's not it's just not where it is and so i kind of said to myself i've got to charge them a monthly fee like as though it's like they're members of a club Mm -hmm. these services you get now i keep that very low in my opinion i mean people are quite shocked when they learn what that is but then i know from the rider side and having not been wealthy or from I mean, arguably, my my father is successful, but he's certainly not one that gives me money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I start adding on a bill that's say six, seven hundred pounds a month, that it's going to be a challenge, especially for some of these young riders. So even now, you're always in a rock and a hard place because we do sponsorship deals for them all, all the time. I love to see them evolve. You know, I never say to a rider, "You must be friends with, mm-hmm. train with that person." Uh, why would you? Naturally, a lot of the group has connections with each other and it is like a family and it's like a tribe. And it's a 2.4 million followed tribe with a weekly reach. I mean, Matt Harnicky alone has impressions of 5.2 million a week. People are blown away. If you see the back end of his Instagram, he's insane. I'm going to interrupt for one second and just give a shout out. To our listeners, if you don't know who Matt Harnicky is, Google it, get in touch. You will not regret it. <laughs> You've done an amazing job with him. He is uh, He's definitely someone that, uh, well, I started following, that's for sure. 
I have to follow that with Matt's quite unique for me because he's, and I'm flattered you said that, but I must do it justice because when I met Matt three years ago, this is one of the most switched on, polite, in tune 23 year olds you'll ever meet in your life. It comes across that way in your messaging. And 90% of what he does, though, he does himself. Whereas Charlotte, I kind of oversee everything and we have clear strategies with what we want to do. I almost joke with Matt, he's my agent. (laughs) You know, I just assist him. I just fit in where he needs me to fit in. And we do some deals. He does some himself. It's quite a unique relationship, but he is the most followed equestrian in the world. He is a professional model. He is a great content creator and editor and does his, you know, he's a successful YouTuber. And he's built that machine long before I came along. Mm -hmm. But I think what I hope I bring to him is just one more experience in certain areas where his age prohibits for a start. And also, I do have a genuine belief in that guy. Mm -hmm. With his first Netflix uh, appearance last year, he's about to launch something in the content space that will quite possibly squash everyone in nine days' time. You know, it's not that I don't feel this about the others, but I don't see any limits to him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he and I have actually become really good friends. You know, it's just we have a laugh. I live not far from him now. He's very easy to get on with. I think what's exciting about him, like I don't care if I've said this to him, if one day you get so big you have one of the IMGs and the William Morris, I'll just follow you around. I'll bring the hair wax. I'm not bothered. He just gives you a lot of energy just being around him. He sounds amazing. Hopefully, fingers crossed, he'll be maybe a guest on What's Your Why before he gets too famous. I think he should. I just hope nothing comes into his life to change who he is. Yeah. Influences with uh, teens or, you know, because he's still only 23. But like I say, you know, he... He teaches me things, and that's a nice thing. You know, he teaches me things, and he's quite, he's Italian born originally and Australian raised, so he's got, he's got opinions, and he won't mm-hmm. mind me doing that. I almost see the energy I had in London in him. Mm-hmm. And I say this to him, where he's also helped my business is his deals are so different. Right. Because he comes from the modeling world as well, and he's been with Armani and his face has hung over Times Square. He's very much a product of this true influencer movement. So he is like a lawyer. He's It's not that he doesn't work hard or go above and beyond for the brand, but it's a contract. It's X amount of social media posts. And then there's rules about what you can't do. And I mean, I love it. There's lawyer in my family. We love it. But with Charlotte, it's very much the traditional you're our official ambassador, you only have that saddle, you only have that bridle. And Matt has that in certain categories, but he won't – I'm not saying the other riders do, but he holds his value. Mm -hmm. Not about arrogance or who he thinks he is. It's about facts and data. You know, he has whatever is now 690,000 followers on Instagram, but Charlotte, who is colossal and the most followed professional rider, she has an impressions reach every week of, say, 880,000. That's 5.2 million. And when you can pull your mobile phone out and just show the back end of this, it's insane. Yeah. But, you know, then Charlotte lends her voice brilliantly to brands that may be way more technical, way more professional rider focused. So, 
between, say, Matt, Carl, and Charlotte, they really are, in my opinion, the titans of the equestrian world. Mm-hmm. Not just dressage, you know. As you know, Helen, uh, from having the venue, that there's only X amount of riders that can sell out a masterclass. Yeah. And if they don't, it's not to do with they're not, they don't have the expertise or they're not good enough or they're not popular. It's simply where the sport is in the mass mm-hmm. mainstream perception. Mm-hmm. Carl, Charlotte, you know, wherever Matt goes, I hate to say this because I hate McDonald's um, and I don't do fast food, but since I've been in the Netherlands and it's kind of like you don't even know where you're flipping Flippers are your pajamas at the moment. We've been to McDonald's a few times. We literally show up at McDonald's and the girl in the window nearly had a heart attack. Really? We're at McDonald's, for God's sake. <laughs> He's very exciting. And so I decided to evolve PF over time. Can I kind of mimic that Charlotte formula with younger ones? Is that when you decided to drop the other things that you were doing and then focus solely on PF? Yeah, and I kind of started to take consultancies with brands in the equestrian space. But what I didn't want to do is take, say, out-and-out equestrian brands like feed companies, saddle companies. I mean, I do it now. Um, I've just actually started a nice, exciting uh, consultancy with a brand called Kingsley, which I think is going to be very exciting globally. I didn't want to kind of have any bias because we do – the sponsorships, the riders have 60, 70 sponsorships across the group. Mm-hmm. What I like about the riders is it's not about money. It's, some of them are on financial sponsorships, but they're su- such horsey people. I mean, you can offer Charlotte all the money in the world, same with Matt, but if they're not going to ride the same in those saddles or their heart horses that they live for aren't performing well on the feed they won't do it Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I just kind of dropped some of those London clients started to pick up some of the younger ones and you know other elite athletes and and build it really into something I think is quite special we've got riders in America we've now started with Semika Rothenberger and I just think she is I've admired that girl from afar since I met her a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, even the FBI took the time to write me an email to congratulate me and semi on aligning together. And that meant a lot to me, you know, because I think the truth of it all at the end of the day is it's not about seeking gratitude for ego. You just want to know that you're doing things okay. Mm-hmm. And when you get people like the FBI that govern the sport worldwide taking the time to just drop a few lines like that, or you get a message off Charlotte in a difficult time and she says, I always appreciate what you do. To me, that is the value. It almost backs up your original thought of, I think I can do some good things for this girl. Yeah. And it, it, if we tie it to what you're trying to do with this, it's what's your why? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not driving a flash car. I'm not. I've still been renting for years. I do own a property in London. And again, you know, we're always rich to someone. Of course, I'd love to have tons of money and just go shopping in the middle of the day and all this stuff. But the experiences that that has afforded me with traveling the world, especially with Carl Hester, who's always taken me the last four years and is one of the funniest, nicest human beings on earth, as you well know. Mm-hmm. To go into the shows, to see Vallegro and things like this, and then Matt evolving and even more, you can't put money on this stuff. Right. You just can't. And 
running your own business, as hard as it is, especially with coronavirus, we've seen a drop in our revenue in a big way. Yeah. We're always better off than someone. I kind of always get up with a positive attitude. Mm -hmm. The world owes you nothing. I can either watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills at 11 a.m. or I can save that for 9 p.m. and get on with my day. It's true. uh, It's just who I am. And, you know, I'm very proud of PF now. We have kind of gone into other areas. If we do events with people like yourselves and we decided to do a couple ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were successful. We've hit hurdles with things. But, you know, I'm proud of what it is. I do think it's the biggest management company in the space. Uh, We certainly have some of the biggest riders in the world. Um, We've retained a lot of those. Yeah, we just see what happens. Is it still just you or do you have, how many people are employed with PF? Well, this is what's hilarious. It's uh, it's that, you know, when you build a brand and you create the illusion, everyone thinks there's 10 people I've had. I have a lot of resource I can pull on in terms of photographers, designers. I've had agents in the past, but, you know, a bit like the star effers in the music business, I think most of them just want to come to the masterclass, hang out with Carl Hester, get a lesson. And I think I'm a control freak, as most business owners are. Mm-hmm. I manage to run the riders. I think as well, by keeping the kind of mem- membership fee, as I call it, low, I strike a balance. I mean, I do think it's worth more, but I also know the riders promote PF. Mm-hmm. And it's open doors everywhere. So, but what I say to the riders is, I don't want you ringing me Monday morning asking me if you've got a book deal that you told me about last night and that you want to work with Equiline and you want a deal by tonight. We'll do this, but you fit in around my world as well. Yeah. Because they know me well enough now to know that work is an obsession. I'm not having to work to provide for a family. Mm-hmm. I'm not having to work to make my father proud he is. I mean, I probably should have done something else than I'd have a really nice car <laughs> and not be renting. But at the same point, I I say to them, they know that I'm always on. Mm. And I know that's a peril and a flaw of our culture these days that it's been curated in that way. But that's often not through choice, mine's through choice. Mm-hmm. I've found a balance now that I'm not on emails with a bit of stress at eight o'clock at night. I will watch Netflix or whatever, but I work because I'm completely and utterly obsessed. Mm-hmm. And Charlotte is, you know, the likes of Charlotte, she's completely and utterly obsessed with being the best. Right. Forget my bias of working with her. The girl is a freak. <laughs> She never misses a gym. She never misses a corner. She will always ride the straight line. She will care about those horses to her dying death. She's not talented. She's obsessed. Mm -hmm. And I think the two of us with this energy has just kind of worked because it's a bit like Coco Chanel said, you know, I say that, I've just set that quote up and I can't even remember. (laughs) Don't expect a daughter to, don't, what's the phrase? (laughs) <laughs> People need to know I'm stupid as well with this one. <laughs> what is that phrase? Don't expect a door to turn into a wall or a wall a door. A wall a door. Let's change it to something else. You know, if people say no, we'll find a bridge around it. You know, mm. it's just how it is. A lot of it's networking. A lot of it's going to the shows. The same way in the music business, it was 
going to award ceremonies, going to gigs, you know, you've got to um you've got to put yourself out there. Yeah. Do you have any plans to grow Piaf more in terms of employees and globally and different disciplines, that type of thing? I always say yes, but then I think as I get older, I think with my dogs, for example, I now I moved from London to Windsor. Um, I lived on the Crown Estate uh, near Windsor Castle. I think as a person, you slightly change what what's important. I'm not saying the hunger game's still not there and the ambition's still not there. I mean, you know, simply just signing up Semica, I was so thrilled she would give me that chance. Mm-hmm. Yes and no. I mean, yes, I don't want anyone to be bigger and better than us, but it's also life. It may happen. Mm-hmm. But I certainly won't stop working for anything. Right. You know, and again, I've obviously moved to the Netherlands now to see how it goes for a while. I've started with a brand consultant because consultancy is part of our business as well. Mm -hmm. And I've started with this brand Kingsley, which is uh, luxury leather goods, boots and saddles. I've kind of stalked the CEO for years now. Because, again, there's a lot I believe in with this brand, and I do think they're true to their mission. And I'll take on the global marketing of the brand and dealing with agents, dealing with the sponsored riders. But had you said, would I have left Windsor only four days ago, packed up a van and moved to the Netherlands and lived by the beach with the dogs, just to see how this goes... (laughs) I told Carl Hester Blessing was calling me and he was getting an international tone for a few days. He's like, where are you? What are you doing? (laughs) And I told him and, you know, and I told Charlotte and I was a bit nervous because I'm good friends with uh, them and I value, you know, what we do. And I didn't want to think like kind of absence is out of mind or you don't, you're not on your game anymore. And, you know, Carl said, well done you. I'm proud of you. Netherlands is like the home of the horse in the Mecca. The Mecca. And, you know, so many of the shows the guys do on the FEI World Cup circuit are here. Matt's based here, which is helpful. And Yessa Drent's based here, another amazing rider, trick trainer. Again, it's not, I'm not 21, 2 anymore moving here. It's, it is worrying. And you, you know, less people, but. The dogs and I have been on the beach the last few days and we just start anew. We just go on. I think the amazing thing, if you have the laptop and the phone now, you and I think coronavirus has proved this, you can be anywhere in the world. Absolutely. And do your job. If the people believe in you that you are trustworthy and going to do your job, then you just do it. It doesn't matter where you are. Exactly. I'm interested to know if you ever had an aha moment with Piaf. When did you know that you were absolutely on the right track with it? Because I'm sure in the beginning it was sort of touch and go. Am I doing the right thing? Am I heading in the right direction? Should I do this? Should I do that? But did you ever have that type of, yep. I think it's when you stabilize your income to survive. You know, when I made that transition from a full-time job, which you know is going to pay the bills if you've done your budget well and so on, to kind of hustling in a way of, you know, for MasterCard, I was clearing. Uh, MasterCard used to sponsor the Brit Awards in the UK, probably still do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hired me through an old Sony colleague that worked with them to clear artists to appear on the show. So you're hustling, and then you know these things are short term. So I think 
as kind of non-momentous as that is, I think stabilizing the income so I could, could do it was a big moment because it is all terrifying. You know, as tons of people that have left full time to do their own businesses know, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it breaks my heart what's going on in the world right now because, I, I mean, I've actually, I've been fortunate because I know so many people go through this. Good people, well, it's not necessarily about being good, but mental health challenges everyone and everyone's susceptible to it, whoever you are and whatever your financial status is or whatever. But I think it's broken my heart. And I think even I felt the anxiety creep in over the last three, four months because it's destabilized so many people in quality, aviation, everybody. And nobody can really forecast when it finishes. So I think that's sad because you kind of see your business grow year on year. You see the revenue rise. You see good talent coming on board, good athletes, new clients, and you're riding a wave. But again, my typical attitude is people have been through worse before you. It's true. And I know that kind of sentiment can frustrate people when you say, well, look at what people have in Africa, you know, and and that can't interrupt your daily life. It's not realistic. But the truth is, if you live a bit by that, it's actually a motivating thing. Mm -hmm. You know, be grateful, focus on what you have instead of constantly what you don't have and go, all right, I have lost thousands every month in revenue, but I'm still here. Right. I'm still motivated. I found it the last few months more stressful than any period in my life. Yeah. It's almost like a low level anxiety that you can't seem to move away from. It is. It's low level. You can't even, if you've not been through the depression thing, you can't even really identify what's going on because I still get up. I'm still having good banter on the phone and good. I've been doing good sponsorships, but there's something that's existing there. And I think it's in the morning actually where it's kind of a bit like, oh, I'll take a bit longer today. I'll be in a bit in denial about that for a little while longer. Mm-hmm. Still there now. But what keeps me going, and I hope keeps everyone going, is just that focus on these are periods of time that, I mean, yes, there's not been many pandemics in the world, but there's certainly been challenges, wars and so on. So it's just about really speaking up to others which most people find hard and trying to surround yourself with a network that will welcome what you're going through and support you yeah and I think that's something you learn in the business as you get older as well you don't actually need a lot of people around you you don't actually need a lot of friends you need just good people Mm -hmm. those people that you know lift you up walk with you and they are there Mm -hmm they are there and it's um it's important to seek them and then cherish them i think absolutely mutual support is always something that uh is important and i think we forget we move away from it and now's the time to come back to it yeah i'm interested again to know if it was always your intention to grow pf to have all of the streams that it has you know in terms of you offer talent management brand management events, as you mentioned before, um, publishing opportunities. Was it always your intention in the beginning to think, oh, I can develop all of those streams? I think yes, in many ways, back to the kind of looking at a label, all the different areas that contribute to that personality's brand 
presence, what they stand for, who they are, what their successes are. But I think, again, it evolved with Charlotte over time. You know, she when she broke all those records, which she still holds, and she reduced grown men and women to tears. And and I saw that the one in 20 in the bar, you know, there's all the wonderful data and the big agencies that charge you thousands. But interestingly, you go in, I used to speak to my dad's friends. Have you ever heard of Charlotte Desjardins? They'd all be there with a pint of beer. Who? <laughs> And then, you know, you'd visit the family a year later. Who's heard of Charlotte Desjardins? And they'd be like, oh, is that that girl on the dancing horse Mm -hmm. that danced to the land of hope and glory? And you go, there's my data. (laughs) So, yeah, they're kind of key signals over time of how someone embeds in the public consciousness that I kind of, you see a story. I mean, I truly believe that everything is built on storytelling. You know, it's a huge thing that, The world of filmmaking and films teaches you that everything's storytelling. As I write what I want my personal story to look like as a human and a business person, Charlotte's story evolved. And then that kind of presented, this could be a book. You know, this could be a children's book. We monitored things online and saw she had the huge following in the US and comments were coming in from Tennessee, New Zealand and so on. How about a masterclass? You know, so yes and no is the answer to that. I mean, I certainly, as time went on. More of an organic growth. Organic growth, yeah. Based on kind of my previous jobs, but also Charlotte didn't just get Britain's first gold. You know, she changed the way a lot of how equestrianism is perceived around the world. Mm -hmm. And you can't pre-forecast or strategize something that never happened before. Mm -hmm. We just evolved together. And then when those kind of ideas and discussions were coming up, I drew on my resource from my, well, as I call it, London life to have those conversations. Right. But now she's kind of my benchmark template. And then years before, this was years before I met Matt, but Matt was building up that kind of millennial influencer. He was traveling with that stratosphere that was developing uh now working with both of them i have a template for how the rest of them come into it whatever their age what do you recommend people are in or what are you in tune to to keep yourself knowledgeable and always them in front of mind what do you tap into whether it be you know what papers or what publications or i think you've got to it's like when i was in music there was two trade magazines there was music business international and music week And a bit then going back to the days of being young and reading Peterson's to get my internship one day or writing to Disney. You've got to read. You've Mm -hmm. got to have as much knowledge as you can consume. You know, so I have your address, Arge, is the top of my newsfeed on Facebook. I get horse and hound in the mail. I read sidelines in the U.S. I have conversations with other riders that aren't on PF. I go to the shows. I think the the kind of information I consume that I love the most is from the brands. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't just want Kingsland to tell me or Cavalier Toscano or whoever it is that they have a new collection coming out. I want to know the background to it. I want to know how previous collections have done. And hopefully I'm in a position now with these people that they trust why I'm asking. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, I also think people do business with who they like. People do business with who we – we all inherently judge each other, whether that's right or wrong. And when you see people face-to-face, I mean, I've been drunk and having dinner with loads of these brands at Spoger on the River Rhine, and I've seen CEOs fall over themselves on the way out. And as much as it's not about trying to embarrass them or anything we should be ashamed of, it's understanding that relationships is built on humans first. Human nature. Yeah, and I think we try to kind of corporate make everything so corporate and formal we forget that inherently when you meet people, you instinctively have an opinion on that person. And I love being surprised. I love learning about them. And that opinion, sometimes if it was a negative one to start with, will change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, business should be enjoyed. And I'm always networking. I, I will sit on LinkedIn for an hour and I'll never get bored. I'm not, I'll go on there if I'm looking for, say, the marketing manager of Aston Martin, or I want to know, I get it. I think for me, it's always been the thrill of the chase. Mm-hmm. Rejection to me has always been hugely motivating. It's not enjoyable, but I don't sit around and go, bloody hell. I go, I'll remember that Chanel quote. I really should flipping Google it. <laughs> oh, it's something like, don't knock on a wall expecting it to turn into a door. We'll Google it. We'll throw it in there somewhere. Yeah, just a little ad lib at the end so no one thinks I'm stupid. (laughs) But it is, it's that kind of, uh, you know, I will go on LinkedIn, read your dressage, go to the shows and uh, make a point of speaking to the brands like Haygain and Equisafety I spoke to today just to check in on what's happening. Mm -hmm. So that the more knowledge I have of their mission, values, things that work, ambassadors that work for them. The minute I sign a new rider, I'm already subconsciously doing a mental picture of how I think it's going to go. What road do you want them to travel? Well, you know, the roads are bumpy. I can be with the best rider who's won medals for their age, so talented, so polite, great horsepower, great family, and they're lazy. Right. They don't do social media. They... Don't think, oh, I might send the brand a Christmas card or, right. or you know, some of them are so privileged, they might be nice, but they don't see the value in money. They don't see the value in product. They don't see the value in building that relationship for the long term. And so, some people I still think are great have still turned out to be hugely disappointing. Mm-hmm. And when then I build a reputation and I put my name to, you must uh, Franz Schokomola, that owns Schokomola Sports, I have such a great relationship with him, and he's very German. I'm very English, and I'll walk towards him at Spoga, and he'll be like, "What the bloody hell do you want now?" <laughs> and I'll be like, "Wait, Franz, I've got to tell you about this girl." He'll be like, "You know, this is to sell to retailers, don't you?" <laughs> always take the time. He's always so nice, and but that's kind of important to me that. If I've suggested that person and it works out, that then if I go to Rokal, who are one of the biggest brands that support me and are amazing, and I say, I've got a new girl, they might be like, Christ, here she goes. <laughs> They'll say, okay, it's fine, just based on me. Yeah. And I think to get to that place is a huge reward. Who do you feel is your biggest supporter right now? Matt Harnicky. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, I think Matt, that Charlotte, the riders, I think our own internal little world, actually. I mean, I have great friends. I have a good family. But, you know, I think people like Matt and Charlotte, Carl, that champion me, it still blows my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not saying that in a, this isn't an agent looking after Tom Cruise, you know, where they're all fighting over each other in LA, never to lose that personality. Mm-hmm. This isn't driven by their financial potential or because they have big social numbers. I mean, you know, they have big social numbers, but in the world of a modern day influencer, it's still small. Mm-hmm. I think it's just simply having people in your corner, whatever you do, is a privilege. That help you rise. People that help you rise and stay on top. It is. And, you know, as I say, um, Matt, especially over the last, I mean, God, the last four days uh, of coming to the Netherlands, but just in general, I always joke he's my agent. He's always telling me what to do, (laughs) whether it's my garden at home or whether it's kind of like the way I run the business. But as I say, for 23, it's crazy. You know, he's just so intelligent for his age. He's way beyond his years and it's frightening. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you content where Piaf is right now, or do you do you feel like you have space and room for it to grow? I think there's room to grow. I just think coronavirus has stuffed a lot for everybody. I think I, again, I say humbly, and I hope it translates well on here, but I have now a lot of top riders email us mm-hmm. and up-and-coming riders. And again, I still sit there and I'm like, how did this ever happen? Mm-hmm. I've even had uh, footballers, as you know, soccer players before, But I think, again, you know, it's not just the riders, it's the brands we work with, which is the bulk of our business. I mean, Monica Cool, who owns Kingsley here in the Netherlands, is, you know, she's a small team. She's a successful businesswoman in her own right. This is not her passion project in that she doesn't treat it like a serious business. She does. And it is a serious business. But I kind of like that this brand is prominent, but it's not as big as some of its competitors in what it does. Mm-hmm. But with the quality of what it does is why I've got that thrill of the chase again, because it is an, it's an amazing brand. And again, I think for someone like Monica, a bit like Sally Fisher, when these people sign a contract with you and say, here's your consultancy, we believe in you that you can do it, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. I think the older you get, the more emotional you get. You know, you watch any documentary on Netflix and you're crying for days if it's one of those. You, you're always so grateful for it because we all want someone to believe in what we do. Mm-hmm. We're inherently born that way. It's gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any advice for anyone that's creating their own startup, their own business, their own, that anyone that has that uh that inkling they want to do that what would be a good piece of advice you'd give them i think there's lots i mean i think things like ted talks try and utilize and absorb all the resources that specialize in your business whether it's talks magazines whatever but i think the number one thing is to try and be financially disciplined Mm. it is the most boring thing to hear in the early days and you know i'm open book i don't care in many ways, what I say, if it helps, I haven't been financially disciplined. I have, but I think we've taken big risks sometimes that have paid off, but paid off a little bit through luck Mm. rather than it being really thought out. Because I think when you're in business, especially in kind of with famous people or 
you are in the early days, you know the value of some of these names supporting you and you may do more for certain people because you want, you know, the doors it'll open, but you're sacrificing value Mm -hmm. of yourself. But I think it's just about trying to financially forecast. If you're starting as a one-man band to start with, you've got to look after yourself first. Mm -hmm. I think it's so easy to get caught up in the chase and the thrill and the risk that you, you need to cover yourself first. For businesses right now or early startups or those that are directors of companies or whatever, now it's the time to just try and be as nimble as possible. Mm-hmm. And try, you know, if businesses have to be dissolved or they face such financial hardship that you can do it again. Mm-hmm. And I know we hear this and there's lots of motivators on the internet and people do all these quote posts. And I think we're so consumed by this right now that people don't digest that these things matter. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, for businesses that are starting up, I think I maybe wait till coronavirus is over, my advice. Right. If you're already existing, try and be nimble and use resource and talk about it, maybe to other business people. Uh, banks are offering different solutions. And, you know, outside of corona, just try and take your time. Grow organically, grow your audience, nurture that audience and all your critics people are very affected by critics as well and I've had a lot of them I say that I think most people have been supportive and funnily enough the big three critics in the beginning have written to me over the years and said such lovely words opposed to um, gloating about that I've genuinely just appreciated it. Right. Gloating and seeing it as revenge or, you know, you came out in a certain way, it only serves to trouble you more. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it took, I know for the people in particular that are a lot older than me and they are very high up in the industry, men, one woman. I know certainly for those two individuals, it would have taken a lot for them to do that. And it's important to recognize that, I think, which you have. I think so many people don't. I actually had a conversation with one particular individual at a big horse show. I think it was one in the morning. There'd been plenty of wine flowing. There was no reason to glow. It was a big thing for him. And I knew that and I appreciated it. Mm -hmm. We'll never be best friends, but that's all you need to be in life. Just try and give people a chance. Don't prejudge everyone all the time. Makes your life less rich, morally rich. And... It has been difficult, you know, and I think when you talk about those aha moments, I think um, I was stood with Charlotte's mother on a balcony of one of the shows, and when Charlotte went down the centre line of Allegro's retirement in London, which still chokes me up, it's, uh, you can't put a price on that. Mm -hmm. It's hugely rewarding. Yeah. Uh, What do you do to live your best life on the daily? Walk my dogs. On the beach now in the Netherlands. You know, it's funny because pre-corona, I was traveling so much. I think travel is a huge thing for anyone. You learn so much, you become a better person. So living my best life to me pre-corona is getting on a plane. Being at an airport excites me. Seeing the planes on the runway, I'm just one of those weird people, you know, watching them take off. There's always a sense of renewal and excitement just being on planes for me. But living my best life, I think it's one, paying your bills, two, just being healthy. I don't want to get coronavirus. I have asthma, so I'm trying to avoid that. Mm -hmm. As you get older, it's the simple things. Yeah. 
living your best life, you know, whether it's being able to call on someone, have coffee with someone. Uh, I need to put more effort into the dating game, that's for sure. That's next on the agenda. That's a hard lesson. So I'm on various apps. If anyone's listening, you'll be able to find me somewhere. What's an independent girl and we're a winner. And that's good. But no, I think it's just the simple things. My interests have varied as well. I mean, it's funny, Matt's 23 is obsessed with his garden and his garden is special. I'm obsessed with my garden. So doing gardening, walking the dogs, and I adore dogs. That's another huge privilege, owning a dog. And uh, just taking that time to just enjoy what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I read an article recently that... uh... I have a quote, actually, that I read that you said, and you said, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. It's the tribe. Yeah. I'm obsessed with books. There's a little bit of me that most people don't know. I'm a very old soul. My dad and I, when we were young, we used to go and look around great houses in England. I have a lot of old furniture. I have a thousand plus books. Um, I do read them, not as fast as I should, but I do read a lot of the literature and I like the old traditions of old. You know, I don't write letters, but the letter writing. So whilst my job is very much in the now and I know the value of social and I know the value of the huge advantages of it and disadvantages, I still enjoy just traditions and trying to be more present in a world that's not really helping that. For sure. So tell us now what's happening with PF, even through all the COVID and coronavirus, and uh, maybe share with our listeners how they can take advantage of what you offer. So PF, as I said before, we've got to be nimble. We do have good riders. That's never changed. In fact, we've probably done more sponsorships during coronavirus than ever because a lot of the brands don't have show visibility. They are focusing more on digital, so that's been successful. I am going back into the consultancies, which I had before, but obviously several stopped. I was commercial director for a polo club, no polo, so I couldn't do that. So, yeah, I think what we offer is obviously the riders, we oversee their brand management is the best way I can describe it. Their commercial ventures, their social if they require, but it's very much tailored to the rider. Mm -hmm. I do want the best riders in the world. As I said throughout the podcast, defining best is not always results. I do want to work with a couple more brands, whether that's show organizers or I like brands in the horse space that aren't just an outright product as such, but ones that are involved maybe more experiential, go to shows, maybe have podcasts. What we will be doing is focusing on what we own. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly Carl Hester sells out arenas around the world. Charlotte sells out arenas around the world. Matt has appearance requests all day, every day. The people in certain territories we will always work with because they have local knowledge. Mm -hmm. I do think the kind of creating our own events again one day. We hosted Ingrid Klimka. We've had Isabel Worth. We've done Carl's 50th birthday. But you're welcome to edit that and say 30th birthday because he ages backwards. He's like Benjamin Button. That's right. Looks a day older. We'll say we organized his 30th birthday. So, yeah, I think it's creating IP that we own. I always say no more riders, and then I get a message off Semika Rothenberger and get beyond excited. But I think 
my ambition is to try and, you know, the federations, the FBI particularly, are doing a good job at evolving in terms of their content production. But I think where we can either, with our riders or ourselves, bring equestrianism closer to the more mainstream space, that would be great. Mm-hmm. We recently did some stuff with Aston Martin for Charlotte. Matt, again, just goes off uh, on a rocket train with Netflix, and he's got some amazing projects coming up. If we don't see the IP, we're going to create for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So the plug is www.pf.co.uk if people want to learn more. Yeah. And thank you. It's been fun. Absolutely. But I'm not letting you off the hook yet. And now we've come to what some would call the very best part of the show, our segment appropriately named What's and Why's. It's where we get to ask our guests some questions that inquiring minds want to know. So without further ado, I bring you the What's and Why's for your listening pleasure. Who do you look up to and why? My father. Just because he's, don't get me wrong, I've not mentioned my mother much much on this. She's amazing as well, bless her. I think what I admire most about my dad is, is I could speak to my dad for five hours a day every day. I'd never get bored. I can speak to my mom for five hours every day. I'll still never get bored. But dad has got a very, for such an intelligent person, he's got a very simple way of looking at the world. Like there's no boundaries, you know, he's got this thing of it's one world when it comes to races, opportunities, abilities, people. It's all very simple one-liners. I don't think he knows he says. Mm -hmm. I know from when I was young, it's kind of stayed with me. And I embrace how fortunate I am to have had that because a lot of people don't. Yeah. What's something that brings you joy and why? My dog's. I knew that was going to be your answer. It's so simple, but I love all four of them. Yeah. I always wanted a dog, but I um, had asthma quite aggressively when I was young. And then when I got my first dog when I was living in London, I just think that unconditional nature of human and canine is... I know I sound like such a deep thinker and I'm being over the top, but... You know, it's all the moments you have with dogs and just how privileged we are to have them. So my joys are very simple, just walking the dogs, doing the garden and uh, doing work. Yeah. Work actually brings me joy. I know a few people like that. So you're not uh, you're not a one off. (laughs) When I did this Netherlands move in the last few days and everything's so stressful as much as you try and not make it stressful. I felt most content then when the Wi-Fi was on and the laptop was open. I felt like I was at home. It's I've moved in now. I'm at home. So this I'm on my emails. I'm back to normal. Right. If you give yourself a second to look back through your life, what uh, decision brings you the most happiness and why? Moving to London, probably. Yeah. Although cities aren't for every young person, and I understand why. Again, what is the DNA of that young person's background? Uh, what they've been exposed to but I just think that to experience cities again it depends on your industries but for me do the entertainment side it was just amazing yeah what's something you feel that people get wrong about you and why that the blonde hair makes me stupid I couldn't relate (laughs) I think it's funny because 
I had a recommendation on uh, LinkedIn once and it actually made me laugh. And it was a chap, he was at an ad agency or something in London at the time. And it was nice of him to do it. You know, a lot of a lot of people have done it for me, which is really sweet. But he said uh, he wrote this really formal kind of testimonial off his own bat, by the way. And then he wrote, it ended something like, this is no ordinary blonde. Think otherwise at your peril. <laughs> My God, I can't have that published on there. And I thought, yeah, I can. That's a compliment. Again, I don't, you know, I live in the real world and people need to think like this. So just if I walk in a room, I mean, when I was at Sony Music, they always they said, why do you always tie your hair back for meetings? I was like, I have a Northern English accent. I've got blonde hair. I'm 20 and I'm here to talk with men from Nokia or whatever it was at the time. Mm. I was like, I'm just lowering the odds of what they're instinctively going to do, whether it's right or wrong. Yeah. We all do it. And to say otherwise is lies. Um, We all slightly judge people in that split second. So I always just say knowledge is king. Yeah, for sure. Fill your knowledge bank in your brain and you'll always be fine. I think I already know the answer to my next question, which is uh, who you'd like to hear on what's your why as a guest and why. Ah, Harnicky, of course. I sound like a fangirl, but he really is. I mean, he's done a couple of podcasts before, but he is an inspire. I mean, if you have a podcast and then you finish that, you're going to be hopeful the younger generation are going to take the world forward in a good way. Mm. So, yeah. Or Charlotte, you know, both. You'll be my first phone call. <laughs> yeah, why not? If it's going to be a horsey element. But again, you know, just because they're in the equestrian space, they've got you know charlotte can talk about a million things dealing with pressure dealing with media you know how do you cope with your life changing overnight it's not all horse in their world no well abby from the day that i met you i knew that uh we would have sort of a a good camaraderie relationship and i have to thank you for being a guest and thank you for always saying yes and being present and being there. So I uh, I definitely appreciate your friendship, your kindness, and for your involvement. Thank you. Likewise, and thank you. And I'm sorry if I bled the ears of the listeners. I'm like the tangent queen. You could ask me what color my jumper is, and it might be blue, but we'll start talking about Biden and Trump. <laughs> well, I'll definitely be in touch. I might just take you up on the mat and Charlotte. Yeah, I do. Good luck to everything you have in the in the in the works. Oh, and we should give Kingsley a plug. Yeah, do Kingsleyriding.com. An amazing if you are an equestrian. You may have a love affair with a brand you use now, but watch this space. Kingsleyriding.com. Kingsleyriding.com. It is coming to the horsey world. It's already in the horsey world, but it's coming in a bigger way. Perfect. I'm gonna like and follow ASAP. Yeah, beautiful photography as well. In fact, Matt's brother, Steve, is a fashion photographer, commercial editorial. He rebranded the whole business. It is one of the most beautiful equestrian accounts on Instagram. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for your time. We'll definitely be in touch again. And uh, please stay safe and well through all of the challenges we're facing. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Have you ever seen branded horsewear and apparel that's beyond top quality? Ride Every Stride Inc. is your leading provider of custom equestrian products, outfitting horse, rider, and your stable with premium branded products. Be sure to look up rideeverystride.com or rescustom.com for all of your branding needs.
a Twisted Spur Media production. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of What's Your Why? Our listeners, guests, and our sponsors, too. It's our hope that you enjoyed your time with us and possibly gained some new perspective as well. It's said that we can learn something new every day if we just listen, and that knowledge has a beginning, but no end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be safe, be well, and remember, always leave people better than you found them.